Good morning. Trust you're doing well this morning, and we're going to open God's Word, continue our uh, time of remembering Christmas here at Heritage. We're, we're in this series, A Light Has Dawned, and um, we're, we're thinking about Jesus, rightfully so, because it's Christmas, right? And there's nothing like Christmas, there's nothing like the holidays to bring out all sorts of emotions, right? Maybe, maybe they're good ones as you think about family traditions, you think about um, the things that you like to do around this time of year. We certainly have um, some traditions that, that we have. Last night we went to uh, Stonehenge Festival of Lights. That was a lot of fun, especially for Caitlin, um, getting to crawl around the car and, and watch those. I have a picture of our very first Christmas as a couple, um, and, and seeing this picture brings back all sorts of memories as well. You can put that up, Hunter. We could just see the beautiful tree that Emily and I picked out and our stockings on the, on the wall, right? Maybe you think about this sort of thing when you think about Christmas. Um, you, you think about nostalgia of um, getting together with your family or you think about your grandparents' house. Um, all, all these things are stirred up as we think about Christmas. Maybe on the other side, though, there's some different sorts of emotions that are stirred up too, ones of, of heartache or, or longing for um, what you will miss this Christmas, right? Maybe missing a loved one. Or um, we could think about other people in our world, right? The, the, the child who's an orphan because of a war in our world right now. The, the pain of, of never having a stable home or, or never having a father or a mother who you can make these memories with. Maybe this season brings the longing for, for any sort of stability in your life. You, you don't have any. And whether your heart is full of aching or whether it's full of joy, wherever you're at this morning, this Christmas season, I, I want to propose that considering the next name of Jesus, this child, the everlasting father, is going to point all of these longings on either side. He's going to point us to the reality of Jesus um, being a spiritual father to us, spiritual orphans that we are. We're exiled from a stable dwelling place that our God intended us to live in. And so all of these things that we feel are, are on the surface and they're good and they point us to who Jesus is. So we've come to the third name of Isaiah 9-6, Everlasting Father. So I'd like to read our passage, and um, it's, it's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. If you'd like to use a hard copy of the Bible, there's, there's one close at hand. We're going to be on page 479 in the front of that Bible. So let's read together this prophecy, this hymn of praise from Isaiah. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in darkness, who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, this child, this son, is the everlasting father. All right, we, don't, we don't need to beat around the bush. We, we know that this is Jesus. We've studied the context already. We, we looked at this passage. We looked at wonderful counselor and mighty God. This child prophesied in verse 6 is Jesus. The son to be born, this child, will be a father. The second person of the Trinity will, will be um, the everlasting father. So, so how, are we, how are we supposed to understand this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but some passages, some truths probably come to mind. How, how do we understand the Son being the Father? Um, and I'm, I'm excited because I, I was, a, I guess I was assigned this, this name. Um, I don't know if I signed up for it. I, was, I think I was given it. And at first I was met with some excitement. Wow, this will be, be a lot of fun. And then, and, and then also some fear. How, how am I going to unpack this? How, how am I going to see what God's word has to say about a topic like this? And so I've been greatly encouraged as I've studied it. And we're going to approach this topic in a systematic sort of way, seeing what the Old Testament has to say about the Lord being our father, being an everlasting father. And we'll look at the book of Isaiah. And then we're going to jump to the New Testament and see how Jesus gloriously fulfills this name, this, this name of everlasting father. I'm going to let the Old Testament and the New Testament work together, not pushing one or the other out of place, but seeing how they, they work together and, and show us our Savior, Jesus. So we'll, we'll be careful to not to apply what the Bible does to God the Father, to the Son. They each have their, their role. They each have their, their characteristics, and I think God's going to help us do that. So with, with this being said, maybe a, a pastoral note for you to just tuck away. Don't, don't ever say that the Bible is boring. Don't ever say that the Bible is not exciting. Don't let your, your pastors or your teachers handle it in such a way that it, it's not life-giving, because it is. The Bible is full of twists and turns and depth and wonder. And even still, you won't find any errors. There's not any contradictions. It's never going to let you down because it's the very words of God. So this morning we're going to unpack what the Bible says about a son, the son, who is called the Everlasting Father. And, and studying this name over the last few weeks has enriched my heart. It's given me comfort. It's given me security. And, and I think we need this name of Jesus. We, we need to know him as our Everlasting Father because... As his people, we, we are, we, we were desperately lost and without hope. 
what he designed for us to live in, we, we are without. Without our everlasting Father, we're, we're lacking provision, protection, the very life that we have. We're in deep darkness without him, and we're in need of a Savior to bring us into his family. So let me pray, and then we will continue to uh, consider God's word. Lord, help us this morning to see your word truly. Help us to see what you need us to know about our everlasting Father, you as our everlasting Father. Pray that you would help us see what Isaiah intended when he wrote this. I pray that you would help us see the hope that this brought to your people, Judah and Israel. And I pray that you would help us see Jesus clearly as we look to him as our Savior this Christmas season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, are you ready? Sometimes prophecy can be challenging, right? So I, I wanted to make it really simple. And I have, so I have two points. One, everlasting, and two, Father. It's always good to steal someone else's joke, right? So let's, let's consider everlasting first, right? Like I said, a systematic way, we're going to unpack this. Let's consider everlasting first. And we're going to consider a couple different aspects of, of everlasting. Um, some of the other translations actually use the word eternal, eternal father. And I, th- I think considering everlasting is, is um, it first takes us to the idea of eternal, right? The Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. In him, there's, there's no beginning, there's no end. He is the one who was and who is and is to come. How can we separate eternity from God? I don't think we can. A.W. A. Tozer didn't think that we could. He, he says that if, if somehow the Bible were to not teach God's eternalness, we would be compelled, as we consider all of who he is, to see it in all of his other attributes. God's everlastingness is at the center of who he is. And if somehow the Bible didn't have a word for God being eternal, we would be compelled to make one up because it's so critical to who God is. He can't be God if he's not eternal. We, we do have a word for it, right? everlasting or eternal. And so this is, this is how Isaiah describes this child, Jesus. He's already lived all of our tomorrows. He's already been where we've been, and he's, all, he's already lived where we're going to go. Moses, in Psalm 90, as he prayed a prayer, Moses preceded Isaiah, Moses helped lead God's people as a, as a prophet and a leader out of Egypt. He prayed this. He said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought or were born or brought forth, the whole world, or you brought forth the whole world, sorry. He says this, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is who God is. He, he is eternal. And, and at the end of this section, Psalm 90, Moses implores God, would you teach us to number our days? Lord, teach us to number our days because you are the everlasting God. Does your view of God include this aspect of him? Does your, does your view of God include his eternalness? Have somehow you limited him in your mind to the, the time and space that, that you occupy as if he could be put in a box like that? Are you in awe 
of him as, as one who stands outside of time, never aging or diminishing. So Isaiah certainly means eternal when he writes everlasting. The Lord is eternal. And as marvelous as that is, I think he has in mind even a little bit more when he writes the word eternal. I, I think Isaiah also has in mind that uh, the Lord is continuous. I know that's not quite the proper use of an adjective, but the, the Lord is continuous. It's not just outside of time, but he, is, um, he always is outside of time. Look at Isaiah chapter 43. I have it on the screen for you. The end of, of, of verse 10 into verse 11, he says, Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He, he's saying but before any other God was and, and after any other God could be formed, I am. I, I, it's not just that God is, is eternal. God is eternally God. He, he's always been God. He's always been the Lord. It's um, possible for God to be eternal, certainly. It's only possible for him to be this sort of God if he's eternal, but it's only possible if he is continuously God. So, so eternal and continuous help us understand everlasting. And can I, can I add one more to this aspect of, of everlasting? I think Isaiah also has in mind that God is faithful in his everlastingness. He's, he's faithful. So he, he always is, and he always is God, and he's always good at being God. He's, he's, never, never, he's never bad at being God. He never ceases to be who he is. He's always the same. He's always exactly what we need. Consider the next two verses in Isaiah 43. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver you out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? God is, God is faithful. He's not, just, he's not just a God. He is the God. He always is God, and he's always our good God. Think about the, the larger book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet sent to the people of, of Judah to call them out against their idolatry. They continually turn to other gods, despite good leaders, despite bad leaders, they continually were unfaithful to God. And, and standing in stark contrast to his people, God has been faithful. He, continues, he is continuously the God that they needed, even when they weren't the people that he called them to be. So the Lord is everlasting. He's, he's eternal, he's continuous, and he's faithful. As, as critical as it is to understand this word everlasting, it's, it's not sufficient to stop there because everlasting modifies father. Everlasting helps us understand father as the center of what Isaiah has in mind with his name. It's, it's these words together which help us, give us this, this full picture. So let's, let's turn our attention to father now. And, and I'd like to propose three actions that a good godly father takes as we see 
laid out from the scriptures. This, this is not exhaustive, but I think it helps us understand the context of how Isaiah is using this. So first, a father establishes a house for his family. Say establishes. Good. Establishes. A father establishes a house for his family. God provides a place for his family to dwell in. And in the Old Testament, we, we see God relating to his people in this way, even from, even from the beginning. Let's, let's go back to the beginning, to, to the Garden of Eden. God has wanted to dwell in a place with his people, in a secure and stable house. That's, that's how Eden was set up, wasn't it? Was it not? God put Adam and Eve in the garden to take care of it, to, to be his image bearers, but he put them there so that he could dwell with them there. That, that was his house for his people to dwell in. And, and we know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned. Even though they were designed, they, they were purposed to be his image bearers and to spread his rule throughout the entire world, they, they, they messed it up. They, they sinned. They broke what God had created. Take a step further in the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament, we think about the Abrahamic covenant. What, what was the Abrahamic covenant, what, what did it consist of? It consisted of, of a, a promise from God, and part of that promise was uh, that Abraham's descendants would bless the whole world. Part of the promise was that there would be a seed that would come from Abraham. Right, that, that's significant to this prophecy as well. But I, I'd like to focus on the fact that Abraham's promise included the promise of a land. It included a place for God's people to go and to dwell. Before they got there, they made another stop along the way in Egypt. God used Egypt to save the people, to help multiply them, but they, they were stuck in slavery. They, they were not in the land that God promised to Abraham. And so this Moses character that I mentioned already was used by God to lead them out of their slavery in Egypt and, and lead them to the promised land, the land that, that God would give to his people as a, as a dwelling place. This, this leaves us where we are in the context of Isaiah because up to this point, we're in the, the monarchy of Israel and so we, we, we know David's throne. It was part of our prophecy, David's throne. And... Um, I'd like to consider what God promised David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says this, and I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. This is, this is the land that God was promising to his people. He was establishing a house for them, right? A good house, right? Uh, a, a good and spacious house. He promised to Moses a, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is what God was up to. We could focus even in on the context of Isaiah. 
the, the context being chapter 7 through chapter 9, listen to some of these clippings from these chapters and, and catch how they talk about a son, catch how they talk about a father, catch how they talk about a house. Isaiah writes, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Now the house of David was told. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Hear now, house of David, the Lord will bring on you and your people and the house of your father. From bef- for before the boy knows how to say to my father, uh, say my father or my mother. I, I want to focus in on chapter 7, verse 2. The people of Israel have been anticipating this house that God would use as their, their stable and secure dwelling place. And, and as I unpacked a couple weeks ago, the context of this passage is Judah being threatened by Israel and by Syria. They were in threat of being invaded. The, the house that God promised and they were now occupying in part was about to be taken away from them. And, and they were in they were in distress over this. Isaiah 7, 2 says, Now when the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as trees, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. This name, Everlasting Father, meant a great deal to those who would have read it first. It, it was a promise of hope, it was a promise that somehow, some way, God would secure for his people a home for them to live in, a house for them to live in. This promise of a father meant that there would be a source of stability. So a, a father establishes a house for his family. Secondly, second action of a father is a father resides with his family. Say resides. Father resides with his family. This aspect of fatherhood uniquely draws out the tension of this prophecy more than these other actions. See, how, how could the child, how could the son be an everlasting father? How, how could this be? This was supposed to be a mystery. This was supposed to be a wonder. How could this happen? How could this be possible? Matthew 22, the, the Pharisees show that they, maybe they don't quite understand this tension like they ought to. Matthew 22, starting in verse 21, I have it on the screen. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, for David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I have put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Do you see the, do you see the tension that Jesus is trying to point out to the Pharisees? How could David call his descendant his Lord? How could David call someone who would come after him greater than him? Or your offspring are, are like you. But somehow the Messiah would be, would be different than, than David. He would be greater than his Lord somehow. 
Right? The, the tension is that the Messiah would have to be cut of the same cloth, so to speak, of David. He, he's going to be David's offspring after all. But, but on the other hand, this Messiah would have to be something different because his rule would be everlasting. He, he would be greater than David. He would have to be the same as David, but he would also have to be different. He would have to unite himself with his people. He would have to dwell with them if he was to be their everlasting father. But he would have to be different to establish a, a perfect sort of rule, a perfect sort of dwelling with his people that, that no prophet, no king had ever been able to do for Israel. He was going to rule with perfect justice and perfect righteousness forever. So, God, Father, has to reside with his people. Thirdly, Father gives life to his family. Say, gives life. Father gives life to his family. Now, we, we, we could think about this from a physical perspective, right? You're not a father if you don't produce an offspring. Some, somehow, right? We... we um, are able to do things like adoption and, and other things. But by definition, you're not a father unless you have some sort of offspring, unless you give life or uh, sustain life to someone else. By the time we work our way through the book of Isaiah to the end, this child has, has grown up. He's a child that's prophesied. And Isaiah looks ahead to this child grown up as a suffering servant. In Isaiah 53 10, Isaiah prophesies that even though this child has grown up and, and grown up to be a servant, this Messiah, this Savior, would be crushed. Even though he would be crushed, even though he would die as a servant, he would still see his offspring. That's what Isaiah 53 10 tells us. Even though he would die, he would still see his offspring. How, how could that be possible? How could God do this through him? He would not stay crushed. Life would be at the center of what the Messiah did. Not, not death. Life would be at the center. So when we look to Jesus, we see these things come true. When we, when we look to Jesus, we, we see something. Right? How, how many of you have, have had someone else say to you, you are just like your father? Maybe they said it like that. Maybe they, um, maybe they said it with um, some disdain because they weren't happy about how you were like your father or your mother or someone else, your grandfather, whatever it might be, right? We can begin to understand Jesus as the everlasting father by affirming what he himself said about himself in John 14. In John 14, 11, Jesus is interacting with his disciples and they ask him, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And this is his response. He says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus is a little bit frustrated with his disciples because he is showing them what he's doing. He's showing them his works. He's showing them who he is. And the disciples say, show, show us the Father. Jesus, his, his response is, how could you ask me to show you the Father? I, I, have, I have been showing you the Father. 
The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. They have always been one, and they they will always be one. Because of this, when we see Jesus, we see the Father. More more truly than any one of us could say, we, we ought to say of Jesus, you are just like your Father. When we see Jesus, we see his Father. So, so Jesus points us to the, to the Father, but he, it's more than that, right? It, it's, it's more than that. He, Isaiah didn't say that Jesus would point us to his Father. He didn't say he would be like his Father. He said that his name would be called Everlasting Father. So there, there's more that we have to understand. Jesus is a, a faithful, forever Father. While Jesus is not God the Father. He, he acts like a spiritual father to his people in, in the ways that we've already talked about. See, Jesus, Jesus has established you as his household and he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us to dwell with him forever. Jesus has made you his household and he's gone to prepare a place for you. This reality should be fresh on our minds because of 1 Peter, actually. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you have have trusted Jesus to save you from your darkness, from your sin, you are now the household of God. You are the dwelling place of God. You and I are being built up like stones of a building, strategically placed and always growing to be God's dwelling place. And it's not just regular stones, because these stones are alive. We are alive. Jesus is establishing a spiritual house for his people. And it starts with us. It's in anticipation of what is to come. He, he's doing that now because of, of what he's gone to do for us. God, God has brought him back to himself. And going back to John 14, Jesus says this, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be with me where I am. So so Jesus is working now to establish his house, and he's he's also preparing a, a place, a secure, a stable place for us to be with him. What, what could be more secure than dwelling with him in eternity? Heaven is not about the stuff that's in heaven. Heaven is about who is in heaven. It's God. It's dwelling with him like he intended in the beginning. Like the beginning, the Lord is working to glorify himself by spreading his rule over the entire world. And he's doing it through his household. He's doing it through his body. And we, as his household, we bear his image. We with, we with him are spreading his dominion over the, the world, spreading his glory for all to see. So are, are you on mission like Jesus is? Are you, are you on the same mission as Jesus to make his glory known throughout the entire world? 
Are you living your life in such a way that you are spreading his image wherever you are? When you go to work, do they see your ethic, your work ethic? Do they see how you care for each other, your coworkers, and wonder what your God is like? When you go to school, do they see your attitude? Do they hear the kind of words that you use and wonder what the Jesus they know you follow is like? When you play your sports or you watch your sports, do the, do the people around you see your passion for winning and honoring God above anything else? And wonder what's different about you. When you talk to your spouse or your children, do you talk to them in a, a, a Christ-like, humble way and, and show them how to lead like Christ has led you so that they're motivated to do the same back to you? Is, is that true of your life? Are you spreading God's glory as he's building his house? So Jesus is establishing his house. He's gone ahead of us, prepared a place for us. He did that by coming to dwell with his people. Jesus came to dwell with you and has secured your eternity with him. Consider Hebrews chapter 2 with me. This is speaking of Jesus. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who, has, who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus came to dwell with you. He took on flesh and blood so that he could free you whose life was held by slavery and by darkness. Jesus became fully human. He, he became a brother. He, he became like one of us in every way so that he could make atonement for our sins, so he could deliver us from our slavery. What humility what selflessness that he would show to do this. What love has Jesus displayed by coming to us, coming to dwell with us. We were not deserving. We were unfaithful, but, but he has been faithful as a father. He didn't come halfway. He didn't come to just partially relate to where we were and what we're going through. He came all the way. And, and as we consider the end of his life, Jesus went all the way to the grave. He came all the way and he went all the way. This is what Philippians 2 reminds us of, right? He humbled himself. Being a servant, he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, so that he can make a way for us to dwell with him, for us to have a future with him. I'm sure your mind goes to another name of Jesus at this point too. Isaiah 7, 14, there's a promise of a virgin bearing a son whose name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus has come to be with us. Matthew 22, this prophecy comes true. This prophecy comes to us as an angel 
declares to Joseph, your, your virgin bride is going to bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The, the son would be God with us. And the reason is that he would save his people from their sins. Has God saved you from your sins? Have you trusted in Jesus who came fully to earth as a man, the God-man come to live a perfect life, pay the, the payment for sin that you could not bear, the, the, the death on a cross that you deserved to die. And he rose again, securing our eternal life. When Christ does this for us, he gives us eternal life. He gives us spiritual life, just like a father does. John 10.10, 10, thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is Jesus, our everlasting father, establishing his house, dwelling with his people, and giving them life. A promise that applies to us now and, and points us to what is to come. See, in this world, we, we can either take joy or, or have grief over a father who loves us in these ways, or we can, we can have joy over a father that loves us in these ways, or we can have grief over not having one who's been this for us. But praise God that Jesus, the everlasting father, be, be there for us, be there for you in a never-ending, always the same, always faithful kind of way. Regardless of your earthly circumstances, here and now, Jesus, as an everlasting father, has established a dwelling place for you. He, he's come into the darkness to meet you, and he's, he's offering you, or he's given you, life. Jesus, like a great father, has the long game in mind. He's preparing his people for what is to come. Since the fall in Eden, since the beginnings, God has been working to restore every part of what he created, right? That, that's what happens right after the fall. After Adam and Eve sin and break what God created, God has been at work promising a seed who would, who would crush the serpent's head. The seed would, would help restore, would, would be the way that God restores everything that he created, we were a people walking in deep darkness, just like Judah and Israel. That, that was us. This is us. And now through the light of the world, Jesus Christ, our everlasting Father, we too are the light of the world. A light has dawned on our life so we could shine that light for everyone in our, in our lives to see. Light has dawned so we can have a hope and a future it can have eternal life. So even this week, even this week leading up to Christmas, as we participate in our celebrations, as we do the traditions and, and, and do the things that we do, which are good, let's remember our everlasting Father. Let, let's feel the comfort of Jesus living inside of us. And also feel the yearning that this is not our ultimate home. Let's glory in the life that we now have through the death of Jesus. Be convicted to let our light shine before everyone in our life so that they, they see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. 
and glorify our everlasting Father. He is the one who has brought us out of darkness and richly provided all we need to dwell securely with him. Let's pray. Lord, so grateful for Jesus. Grateful that he has made a way. Grateful that he would humble himself. He would humble himself and step into the darkness in which we stand. Darkness in which we live. There's no greater example of someone being like a father to us. Giving us what we need. Being with us. Giving us life. So I ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to dwell on these truths. To dwell on, on how Jesus has changed our lives. I ask that you would help us not just to hold this in either. Help us to be a light because the light has dawned on us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.